This is the Andrew Lake Podcast, and today we're talking about infinite creativity. But first, I'd like to mention a few things. First of all, apologies for my croaky voice, as I'm just recovering from a cold. Not sure if that really comes through this sort of recording gear or not. Another thing I'd like to mention is that we're going to change our release schedule. So we're at about 60 episodes now, and we've been averaging one a day since launching the podcast. And I'm thinking we'll change this to two episodes a week, starting this week. So maybe we'll release them Saturdays and Sundays. I'm not sure, but the original intention was to do one a day every day for the first two weeks of the podcast, but as it turned out, I just had too many ideas, and there's so much to talk about. So we're moving to two a week, so you can watch out for that. And that sort of segues nicely in today's discussion topic. It segues nicely into today's discussion topic, which is infinite creativity. I've titled this conversation, The Pain of Infinite Creativity, and I'd like us to look at some of the parameters or satellite principles of creativity, because creativity is nested within a number of behavioral and personality traits, which we use to describe a person. And if we complexify our picture and our understanding, we can understand better what it means when we say someone is creative. And then, of course, I'll reveal to you how to have infinite creativity and maybe make the case that it might not be all that it's cracked up to be. There is a downside to infinite creativity. So, let's start our dissection. Creativity is a word we use to describe a person who does a certain behavior. They have a certain trait about them. Creativity in itself, or as blandly as speaking as we can, is simply the making of something. So if you make something, you are creative. If it is in existence because of you, then it is your creation. Terence McKenna has a wonderful way of describing reality as a novelty-making device, or the direction of creation as the grand universal creativity, as moving towards novelty. And basically, nothing comes from anything that hasn't come from before. So creativity in a sense, is the combination of the old to make something new. And there are a number of words that we can use to supplement or divide this idea of creative persons. So when we say someone is creative, we often imply a number of things. So let's dissect this. One thing we don't want to confuse with creativity is originality, or as Terence McKenna would say, novelty. So originality, how new your creation is, how different it is 
to the things that have come before is a different aspect to how creative you are. You can create lots of things, and yet they're not very innovative. They're not very obscure. They're not very eccentric. They're not very different from all that's been before. So this is more like your production line. It's more like you're copying something, but you you are still the center of creativity for it. So originality is very different to creativity. We also have productivity in and of itself. So someone can be creative, but not prolific. Being prolific means you can create lots of things. You can create lots of different things. And just because you can create a lot doesn't mean you are necessarily original. Another thing we need to understand is the difference between success and popularity in conjunction with creativity. So this is the picture or the story of the starving artist or the musician that no one understands or the poet that is misunderstood. These people are creative and they can even be very original and they can even be very productive and very prolific but they don't find success. They don't get a high price on their works. They don't feed themselves into the popular consciousness, the popular awareness. And this can be explained by how we navigate success and what a audience is ready to receive in the way of creative projects or creative endeavors. If you create something that is incredibly original and different and has a lot of novelty, it's actually less likely to be successful because it's hard to understand. It's more weird. It's more abstract. There's a sweet spot somewhere between difference and understanding that can create success. So if we make ourselves a spectrum where on one side of the spectrum we have something that is completely original and totally out there, and no one's seen anything like it ever before, well, on that side of the spectrum, people are going to sort of scratch their heads and go, hmm, ha, I don't get it, I don't understand. There's going to be a lot of complexity there, a lot of cultural and historical references that they need to understand in order to appreciate it. So there's an appreciation barrier to originality and complexity. So we've got that on one side of our spectrum, and then we've got things on the complete other side of our spectrum, which might be, yes, I fully understand it. Yes, it's quite simple. I can see what you're saying there. I can see what that does. If we see someone advertising for a knife and fork, or a kettle, or any of your kitchenware, we can say, yes, this is what it's used for. It's quite easy to appreciate what it's used for. But it's not going to give you the sense of, Ah, something original, something different. But if you can create kitchenware, which has a spark of that originality and that novelty to it, then it can be very successful kitchenware in the world of business or selling products. There's another spectrum which we can use, which is that of utility and aesthetics. So if we have art on one side and our kitchen products on the other then this really gets at this difference between utility and aesthetics. 
So utility is what is its used what is what is its use? What is it used for? What's the point of it? I need some practical application for it. In the case of kitchenware, it's quite obvious. It's quite simple. It's quite clear what the practical utility is. In the case of art, you're not really trying to get at a practical point. You're not trying to get at practicality. There's no instrumental gain to be made from art. It's more about the experience. It's about social commentary. It's about existential commentary. It's about making you think in different ways. And it's about an experience which uses its novelty to give you something that's a little bit different and a little bit tasteful, a little bit, it's like a new experience, a new taste, something that you've never had before, and it's a subtle thing. So understanding this difference between utility and aesthetics is very important in the world of creativity. And you can see creativity fits on both sides of our spectrum of utility and aesthetics. Someone can create something, maybe they're working on a construction site, and you have an innovative idea of a tool that tradies should use to save them some time on construction sites. Now, if you're very creative, and you can think up a prototype product that really saves a lot of time, then we would say that's very creative. That's amazing that you've come up with that thing, that funny little setting on a hammer or something. I can't think of anything, of course, myself, because I don't work in construction. But you could see how we would use this word creativity to put them into the world of utility. And then likewise, we would say the same about aesthetics. Now, aesthetics isn't just about the composition of artworks or film or music. Aesthetics can also be interior design. It can also be food. It can also be your transport. It can also be your clothing, your fashion. So aesthetics is really a very broad thing that can be used to gauge how well something is put together in a pleasing way. And it's not often we use the word creativity for these things in and of themselves. Usually creativity has all of these things like originality, productivity, success, utility, and aesthetics. So creativity is often put on, probably rightfully so, it's probably put on this higher pedestal because it's a complex web of traits which come through. Now, some people are very prolific, but not so original, and we can still call them creative. And some people are more towards the aesthetic side rather than the utility side with their creations, but we can still call them creative. So creativity is quite a large term, and it's quite hard to put people on a one-line grade of how creative they are. Complexity is another one, because it is possible to be creative, but not complex. The amount of data you have, and the amount of resources which you are drawing on in order to create your product, or your creation in general, doesn't have to be a product, depends on, well that feeds into 
the complexity of it. So it is possible to have yet another skewer or another grade through creativity, which is complexity. Of course, a lot of prominent people come to mind when we use the word creativity. And probably most commonly used as an example is Pablo Picasso. Now, was he prolific? Without a doubt, because he painted over 50,000 works of art in his lifetime. So there's no doubt that he was prolific. Were each of those artworks complex? Did they have a dexterity of execution, which was very difficult? Probably not all of them. They all have different degrees. So that might actually be something that pushes him towards the side of variation. So variation is one way you get a degree of novelty and a degree of variability in your prolific nature. So Pablo Picasso can be fed into all these different streams and these subcategories of creativity that we're talking about. And of course, he was very successful because he was able to put his art into the popular consciousness, the popular awareness, because he found that difference between originality and newness and an understanding, a connection, and a context which was relatable for the audience. Another word that comes to mind is skill. Now, skill is a thing in and of itself. And I have sort of hinted at it with this Picasso example. But skill in execution is completely different to originality. And this is most commonly seen in music, or the most easy example that I can think of to express this is in music. You can have a classical musician who has an incredible amount of skill that is not very creative. They are not very original. They're simply playing the pieces as they are traditionally. They're part of a tradition. And they may have an incredible amount of skill in executing classical music pieces. And it takes an incredible amount of skill to play traditional classical music and the full range of classical music as Baroque or Romantic and all the rest of it. But that's got nothing to do with creativity. On the other side, you might have a musician who is very creative, they're very original, and they're even very prolific. They even do a lot of music, but their execution is not so good. Their skill is not so good. Their actual creation in terms of the mechanics and the building of it in terms of details and complexities and degrees of variability and all the rest of the compositional devices that go into music creation, that's very different to skill in and of itself. And now we can turn our conversation to what it's like to actually be creative, what it's like to feel creative. A lot of these creative people seem to have something driving them. Prolific people seem to always be going at it. They're always making so much in a high quality way and it's overwhelming how much they achieve 
with their craft. And one of the associate personality traits that goes along with creativity is actually neuroses. So neuroses is the repetitions of the mind. It's dysfunctions of the mind. It's a pushing into something on a repetitive basis without really knowing the deeper motivation behind it. Now, we can't entirely put creativity into negative light or positive light. We need to look at it from both sides because neuroses can be closely related to frustration. And we can say that someone who is very prolific is frustrated. We can do a psychological analysis on someone who is very prolific and see that they are driven by a discomfort with how they are, with who they are, with what's going on in their life. But at the other time, on the other side of the, or the other way of doing a psychological analysis on creative people is saying that they are energized, they are empowered, and it feels incredibly good to be creative. It feels like there's so much motivation, they can jump out of bed and they can work on it hour after hour, day after day, and they're just so alive with the feeling and it doesn't take effort for them to do that work because it's creative work, it's original work, it's intrinsic motivation, it's not extrinsic motivation. So we do need to be careful with how we analyze prolific people, neurotic people, and creative people in general. I think the answer is to say that at certain points, prolific creativity is a bonus, it's a positive, and then at other points, it is a negative. So maybe we have to all go through a process of intense creativity and intense work, and then later we can change and mature depending on what our life circumstances are, where we are in life, what other things we have done in life, because ultimately we want a colorful life. We want a multifaceted experience of life. So having the process of infinite creativity or the experience of infinite creativity and motivation is probably just one of those experiences we want to have. So with all that in mind, if creativity is something you think you still want, here's the secret for it. There are, I think, probably two broad categories that we can use or two fundamental ingredients that you need for creativity. One is data input. So this is the amount of information that you have to draw from for your creativity. And two is the removing of barriers. So what I'm giving you here is the pathway to having infinite creativity. So if you can understand these two things and bury yourself into these two things, then you will find yourself eventually at a point where you are this churning ball of creativity. You are this incredible thing that has just got so much creativity pouring out of you. So how much data is going in, which is how much you draw from. So if you are a writer, it's how much you read. If you're a musician, it's how much music you listen to. 
how much you analyze music. If you're a painter, it's how many images you see, how many other painters you analyze. If you're a filmmaker, it's how many films you... And it doesn't have to just be with the humanities. It can also be with the world of business and investing. So if you're a stock market investor, it's how many other investors you study and understand their approaches to investing. How many other stock market approaches you can learn about. If you're a business owner, it's how many different business models you know about. How much you know about products, marketing, operations, these sorts of things. So creativity isn't just limited to the humanities. And then the other side, the other fundamental thing is the removing of barriers, the removing of limitations. So for example, one limitation would be perfectionism. Another limitation would be self-doubt. Another limitation would be thinking what other people think or worrying about how it will be received in the popular culture. Another limitation might be your own self-worth, which is similar to self-doubt, but your own self-worth and your own understanding of the value of it. If you understand your own psychology, well, that's another that's another web that you have to un- unwire within yourself to help bring out the, the release of barriers. Another barrier might be your own financial or life condition barriers. If you have financial incentives put on your creative projects, that's going to be a limitation. If you don't need the money for something, if you don't need to be making money from a creative project, then that's going to be the removing of an influence on you. There's also bureaucratic limitations, depending on what sort of craft you're working on. Of course, in the world of movies, there's a lot of bureaucratic and financial limitations. So that's a very complicated web and movie makers really creative, well, creative and original movie makers that are really trying to put something out there, they can only exist within the bureaucratic system. So it's a very very hard slog for a creative movie maker to get their work and their their vision out there. That's a very hard slog. But if you can see that you've got heaps amount of data, you've got heaps amount of information, and you've got no limitations to how you rearrange and jumble up and mix around that data, you can be coming up with new combinations of things endlessly. And this is the birth of infinite creativity. This is where you get into this rolling ball of just more information, more information, and then you get more free and you get more free and you stop caring. You don't care. You become more, you don't necessarily become more sloppy as you become less of a perfectionist. You might still, you still need to integrate the execution and the skill and the detail and all that sort of jazz. So maybe we can have another discussion another day about the difference between execution and perfectionism. But you could see how this is when you really break through. And then then what happens is, once you've done this for a while, is you have more ideas than you can physically do. So anyone who has infinite creativity, and anyone like a Pablo Picasso, 
has this in their mind, which is that there is more ideas than they can do in the 24 hours of the day. And that's what gives them this huge motivation. It's what gives them this massive ball of feeling and creation. This feeling can be quite frustrating. It can be quite difficult to realize that you've got all these ideas that will never come into the world. And that's the pain of infinite creativity. It's that you've got so much to share, so much to do, and no one will ever hear it. No one will ever know about it. And that's a very different picture to the starving artist of saying that someone has these creative projects, but people misunderstand. That's, that's a different picture. It's a different thing that's going on there. But I think, conversely, they're both trying to point at the magic of something that they've seen. And they're in pain because they can see that it's not getting through. There's only a limit to how much they can share, how much they can convey. And this gets at the dichotomy of the subjective world and the collective world. So we all have our subjective experiences. We all have our own processes of reality, our own perceptions, our own mind, our own thoughts, our own feelings. And we can never really know how much of that is being shared with the people in our lives. How do we know how much is being shared? How do we know how much we can convey? How can we know how similar our feeling is to the feeling that someone else is having? Now, of course, we can't go too far with this and say that no one ever understands anything. That's a false assumption. That's a false conclusion because there is shared values. There is shared world space. We do have a collective where there is a degree of overlap, but it's somewhere between 0% and 100%. It's not quite on either side. Like so many things when we talk about philosophy and life, they are never the black and white answers that we think they are. So I think that gives you enough to think about. I hope that's been insightful. Next time you hear someone say the word creative, try and think up these subcategories, which is originality, productivity, popularity, utility, aesthetics, neuroses, complexity, skill. And try and think about some people who you might call infinitely creative, people who are just completely abundant with their their creativity. Maybe look into a psychological analysis, whether they're frustrated or not, whether they're energized or they're neurotic. So thanks very much for tuning in. And that's all I have to say for now.